0: Good afternoon, colleagues. First item of business today is First Minister's questions. And Before we turn to the questions themselves, may I invite the First Minister to update the Parliament on the situation with COVID?
1: Uh, thank you. I will give a very quick update on today's statistics. Uh, 500 new cases were reported yesterday. That is 2.5% of all tests that were carried out, and the total number of confirmed cases is now 204,055. 726 people are in hospital that's 24 fewer than yesterday and 69 people in intensive care, which is one fewer than yesterday. Uh, I regret to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 24 deaths were registered. And in addition to that, three other deaths that were registered recently but not yet included in the published total have been added. Uh, So those three deaths together with the 24 registered yesterday mean that the total number of people who have sadly died uh, using our daily measurement is now 7,398. Once again, I want to send my deepest condolences to all those who have lost a loved one. We will also publish the latest estimate of the R number later today and expect it to show again that the R number is below 1 and that reflects the positive trends that we can all see in the daily figures right now. And uh, I'll also just give a quick update on the vaccination programme. As of 8.30 this morning, 1,688,808 people have received their first dose of the vaccine. That's an increase of 26,729 since yesterday. In addition, uh, 100,058 people have also now received their second dose. Uh, That's an increase of 7,508 since yesterday, um, which means that in total yesterday, 34,237 people received vaccinations. 95% of 65 to 69-year-olds have now had a first dose, as have 37% of 60 to 64-year-olds, 31% of 55 to 59-year-olds, and 26% of 50 to 54-year-olds, an age group that is of particular interest uh, to me, presiding officer. Uh, We still expect to be able to offer first doses to everyone over 50, to all unpaid carers and all adults with an underlying health condition by mid-April. I think taking all of what I have just reported, there is little doubt that things are at the moment firmly heading in the right direction. Uh, The number of cases is falling, The numbers in hospital are falling, and the vaccination programme is progressing extremely well. That is why we have been able to set out the timetable for children's return to school. And next week, I will outline any further changes that we feel we can make at this stage to the level four restrictions. Uh, And then the following week, I will provide more information about the timetable for easing restrictions after the 26th of April. Uh, So there is much to feel optimistic about right now. But I want to stress uh, that that should not see us. Uh, throw caution to the wind. Uh, Case numbers do remain high and, of course, the new variant remains highly infectious. So for the moment, if we want to continue this progress, uh, my advice uh, to everyone is to continue to abide by the stay-at-home rule. Uh, Stay at home except for essential purposes, follow facts when you are out and make sure that collectively we continue to keep everything going in the right direction. So my thanks to everybody who's doing that uh, and sticking with it during these difficult times.
0: Thank you very much, First Minister. Could I encourage any member who wishes to ask a question of the First Minister to press their request to speak, button as soon as possible? And I call on Ruth Davidson.
2: Thank you, Presiding Officer. I want to ask the First Minister about the legal advice on the Salmond Inquiry, because despite this Parliament voting for it to be released four months ago, it was only partially revealed this week. The Ministerial Code makes clear in section 2.30 that ministers must act lawfully, informed of the legal considerations and that the legal implications of any course of action are considered at the earliest opportunity. And this part, acting early on legal implications, is important. So let's go through the timeline. Nine weeks before conceding the judicial review, legal advice stated that the case was more likely to fail than succeed. The First Minister chose to go forward. A month before conceding, legal advice said the least worst option was to stop because otherwise, and I quote, expenses will be far higher. The First Minister chose the worst option. Nineteen days before conceding, the Lord Advocate, government and external lawyers all said the case was not even stateable, the minimum requirement. The First Minister dug her heels in. So will she tell us, to quote the words of her own legal counsel, why did the government try to defend the indefensible for so long? First Minister. Well, I think as anybody who paid any attention uh, to lengthy proceedings
1: yesterday, which clearly didn't include Ruth Davidson, um, will have seen, that's just simply not true. On December the 11th, uh, the law officers were very clear and the... Uh, the information on this has been published uh, and I think the quote uh, from the law officers summarised in the note that was published uh, in advance of yesterday uh, was that there was no question that the case should be dropped. Uh, on the contrary, there were credible arguments to be made across the petition, including on the issue of the appointment of the investigating uh, officer. So that was the position of the law officers. Uh, things uh, started to go wrong, uh, seriously wrong in the case in the days that followed and then uh, due process was followed that led to a decision on the part of the government. Government to concede the case. So that is there for anybody with an open mind uh, to look at. I think the Deputy First Minister has undertaken to provide some further information to the committee, which will happen, um, uh, and uh, the the Parliament can look at that. Um, I I answered questions for eight hours uh, on this yesterday. Um, I answered every question that was put to me. And so, Presiding Officer, I intend now to rest on that to allow both the committee, and the inquiry on the ministerial code uh, to conclude their work. In the meantime, I'm going to get on uh, with the job I suspect most people watching at home right now yeah. want me to yeah. get on with, which is leading, leading this country through and out of a pandemic. And I'll leave Ruth Davidson and the Conservatives to play the political games that they seem to prioritise
2: over everything else.
0: Ruth Davidson.
2: Presiding Officer, the First Minister characterised this as political games, but I have never forgotten, never forgotten the women who were failed at the heart of this inquiry. And the thing, the thing oh, dear, that the First Minister cannot get away from is that it was her government that failed them and that questions still require to be answered. And First Minister, it's not up for question if the government ignored legal advice and cost taxpayers money. What's being argued is how long and how much was wasted. And this is what's truly incredible. The view of legal counsel was, and I quote, based on the facts as then known. And, First Minister, this government didn't even give its own lawyers the facts. Advocates Roddy Dunlop and Christine O'Neill stated this. We have each experienced extreme professional embarrassment on instruction. They made plainly and demonstrably untrue statements before a judge. Documents were withheld from those QCs, which were highly relevant, yet undisclosed. They called that unexplained and, frankly, inexplicable. They refused to, and I quote, rehearse the regrettable way in which the document disclosure has unfolded. So I'll ask the First Minister to rehearse it for us now. Will she confirm that the withheld documents were precisely the ones that made this case unstatable. First Minister. Firstly, I'm going to agree with something that Ruth Davidson said.
1: Uh, I agree that she um, has not forgotten uh, the women at the heart of this because I don't think Ruth Davidson ever remembered the women at the heart of this. The legal advice is there for everyone to see and people with an open mind which doesn't include Ruth Davidson can look at that. Now Ruth Davidson says that she's not playing political games. I beg to differ. I think we saw the true colours of the Conservatives yes. yesterday. First of all on Tuesday night they said this, I don't know if Ruth Davidson approved this comment or not, but the Conservatives said in terms that it did not matter what I said before a parliamentary committee yesterday because they had already made up their minds. It's not about due process, it's political desperation on the part of the Conservatives. But, presiding Officer, I think we also had a glimpse of some of the values at play with the Conservatives yesterday because during that committee session One of the Tory members on it seemed to be suggesting that I should have intervened in the process to effectively sweep the allegations against Mr Salmond under the carpet. And then the other Conservative member asks me to apologise for the inappropriate behaviour of a man. So there we have uh, the Tories, I think demonstrating without any help from me that they are indeed playing political games. So while they do that, I say again, Eight hours of evidence to a committee. It's time to allow the committee and the independent inquiry into the ministerial code to do their job. And in the meantime, I'm going to go on with my job of leading this country through COVID and out of lockdown.
0: Ruth Davison.
2: Presiding officer.
0: Order, please.
2: But the first minister can't get away from the fact that this chamber is an organ of this parliament. And this chamber only saw the legal advice that this chamber voted for four months ago this week. And we have every right to question a first minister who is the head of a government who failed these two women. And, first minister, I want everyone to understand how incompetent and secretive this government is. Legal counsel was provided with one email in a chain. It was a crucial element to their defense. But they were not given the next email, sent less than half an hour later, in the same chain. It was withheld. And when it was finally handed over, it was one of the final straws, and her lawyers had to threaten to resign to force the government's hand. Presenting officer, that information was available the whole time. The government could have passed it to their lawyers in September or October or November, but they withheld it. They kept it secret. And it cost them months and all of us half a million pounds of taxpayers' money. First Minister, why was the crucial evidence withheld for months from the government's own legal team? First Minister. The case ultimately collapsed because information came
1: to light. I set that out in uh, the committee yesterday, and people can judge uh, by looking at the advice that was published themselves and of course the committee will come to its conclusions as will the independent inquiry on the ministerial code and I await the findings of both but again if I can try to strike a note of consensus because I do believe in the importance of this democratic institution by the time I sit down after this session of first minister's questions today I will have been subjected rightly and properly to 10 hours of parliamentary scrutiny over the course of this week. That's me doing my job in discharging my responsibilities. But can I gently point out to Ruth Davidson that this democratic institution that she extols the virtues of is the same democratic institution that she is about to depart to take up a seat in the unelected House of Lords. I think people across this country are becoming heartily sick of the soon-to-be Baroness Davidson lecturing anybody else
2: on democracy. Ruth Davidson <speaks> Presiding officer, because of the legal advice that had to be dragged from this government under threat of a vote of no confidence, we know that for weeks, this government were definitively and beyond any doubt, ignoring legal advice. But the case only became unstatable so late because this government withheld crucial documents for so long. They with- withheld documents from their own lawyers, they withheld them from the court, and they continue to withhold them from this parliament. And what we've already seen shows that there's no argument if this government ignored legal advice they did. The argument is if it did so for three weeks or for more than three months. There's no argument if the first minister was at fault for losing more than half a million pounds of taxpayers' money. The argument is only about how much she's to blame for. And there's no argument if Nicola Sturgeon broke the ministerial code. The argument is only about how badly she broke it. We believe that the sanction is to go. Why doesn't she? First Minister. Well, I think Ruth Davidson has
1: just shown her true colours and the Conservative true colours all over again. Because, of course, she stands up here and says scrutiny and democracy and due process is really important. But just as on Tuesday night, the Conservatives prejudged my evidence to the parliamentary inquiry, she's just prejudged the outcome of the independent inquiry into the ministerial code. Uh, This is just about desperate political games for the Conservatives. I suspect their private polling is even more desperate than the public polling right now because remember, the people of Scotland have been voting no confidence in the Conservatives since the 1950s and I think we're about to uh, see why. So I'll go on with my job, I'll let the inquiries do their job. Uh, I've not prejudged them, Uh, Ruth Davidson clearly has, but I will also in a few weeks subject myself to the ultimate scrutiny, the yeah. scrutiny and the verdict of the people of Scotland, the verdict that matters most. And as I do so, Ruth Davidson will be slinking off to the House of Lords.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Question to Anasawa. Can I start by offering my condolences to all the families impacted by COVID-19 and particularly those that have lost a loved one. Presenting off to the exchanges we have just heard represent the worst of our politics. Each day, each and every single one of us come into this chamber and we sit in front of that mace inscribed with the ideals of this parliament. Wisdom, compassion, justice, and integrity. Principles that have been undermined when the government failed the woman who submitted claims of harassment. Undermined by the government's refusal to hand over all documentation to the committee investigating these failures and undermined by the government ignoring two votes of this parliament calling for all the legal advice to be published. The government keeps telling us they have nothing to hide. But when this parliament twice demanded legal advice be published, they refused. And when it was finally released, it was partial and came just hours before the First Minister's appearance. Wisdom, compassion, justice, and integrity. First Minister, why did it take the threat of a no-confidence vote in the Deputy First Minister for your government to act. First Minister.
1: Well, the importance for all governments of being able to take proper legal advice, I think, should be understood by everybody Across this chamber. Um, and the government, rightly uh, now, given the allegations that have been levelled at it, have published that legal advice. And people can now look at that legal advice and draw their own conclusions. Now, I say again, I sat in front of a parliamentary committee. I'm not sure if there is any other member of this chamber that has done likewise ever. I've sat in front of a parliamentary committee for eight hours, as is my duty and obligation, answered questions that were put to me um, and put the case of the government. I also apologised, as I will do again, to the women who were let down by the mistake that the government made. Uh, So I think it is now right and proper, and I think it is in line with the principles on that mace, which I, like all of us, hold dear, is that we allow the inquiry to do its work. We allow the independent inquiry into the ministerial code to do its work, and we allow me, to get on with the job I believe the majority of the country want me to focus on now, which is to continue to steer this country through a global pandemic so that we can get through Covid, come out of lockdown and get back to normality. And that is what I intend to focus on while these inquiries conclude their work.
0: Anas Sarwar.
3: First Minister, that, that answer would have more credibility if all of the legal advice was published before you gave evidence <laughs> not legal advice after you give evidence. Now, the First Minister has rightly had the opportunity to address the committee yesterday, and I do agree with her. It is important that all parties are given due process and that we do not prejudice the outcome of the inquiry. With that in mind, within the coming weeks, James Hamilton QC will present his report on potential breaches of the ministerial code to the government. The outcome of this report will be crucial in establishing the facts about what happened. The wholly unacceptable and disgraceful situation we have had with the legal advice cannot be repeated with a Hamilton report. So can the First Minister give the people of Scotland a cast-iron guarantee that the government will release the report without delay or obstruction on the day it is handed over by James Hamilton QC? First
1: Minister.
3: Yes. I welcome that commitment from the First Minister, but remember this, we will hold her to that promise. Because because the First Minister is right, this is about transparency and there can be no delay in publishing this report. The ministerial code exists to uphold standards in public life. It is there to protect the integrity of the office of the First Minister, of all Scottish ministers and the whole of the Scottish Government. In her foreword to the ministerial code, the First Minister says, and I quote, I will lead by example in following the letter and spirit of this code, and I expect all ministers and civil servants to do likewise. Wisdom, compassion, justice, and integrity. In that light, does the first minister agree, removing party and personality, that a minister, any minister who is found in breach of the ministerial code should resign?
1: I will uphold my words in the foreword to the ministerial code. I will uphold the principles on that mace, uh, but I will also uh, demand the right to due process, um, which one party at least is not prepared to give me. So let's wait and see what the outcome of the inquiries are. They will be published, um, and then we can debate in this chamber the outcome of that. Uh, I sat before that committee. I answered every question, um, and I will give the committee and the inquiry the opportunity now to do their work.
0: Thank you. Question three, Patrick Harvey.
4: Thank you, presiding officer. Can I put on record my congratulations to Anna Sawa on his election as leader of the Scottish Labour Party and welcome him to his role in FMQs. The Greens do want to see both inquiries completed, but in the meantime... We are still focused on the public health crisis, and I think that is what most of the public want of us. This week, we are marking a year since the first COVID-19 case was recorded in Scotland, and since then more than 9,500 deaths have been documented by the national records of Scotland. Every single one of us will share an expression of condolence to all those who have been affected by that tragic loss. And A year on from that first case, we are now faced with a new threat in the form of the so-called Brazilian variant, which has already been identified both in Scotland and in England. The strain has also been identified in 15 non-red-list countries, showing that the UK government's approach to quarantine is dangerously inadequate. It has been reported that the effort to trace contacts who may have been exposed to this new variant has been hampered by the provision of incomplete data. So it's clear that the current approach to international travel, including via connections within the UK, is not yet enough to keep us safe as the virus continues to change. What further action is the Scottish Government planning to ensure that we protect the public from importation of new forms of this virus? First Minister.
1: Well, we continue to think that international travel restrictions uh, are essential. The travel restrictions we have in place uh, are more stringent than is the case in other parts of the UK. Uh, We do have a concern, I have uh, articulated this concern on numerous occasions that that difference leaves weaknesses in our defence against importation of the virus. So we will continue to work with the UK government uh, to try to uh, fill those gaps and to try to encourage uh, a more uniform position. But we will continue to do everything we can to make sure those protections at our borders are as uh, strict as they need to be, because it is absolutely the case that the key risk we face as we suppress the virus here uh, at home and vaccinate more people is new variants coming into the country that potentially uh, undermine the efficacy of the vaccine so this is one of the most serious challenges and uh, top priorities that we have in the weeks to come
4: Patrick Harvey In addition to these reports of incomplete contact tracing data in Scotland there are also reports of a lost case in England and it's also likely that this variant may be present in other countries, but without having been identified yet. The ongoing importance of our test, trace and isolate systems therefore cannot be overstated. This will continue to be vital even as the vaccine programme is delivered at pace. We know that in the face of new variants, it is more important than ever that anyone developing symptoms, not just new arrivals, are able to access a test and are supported to immediately self-isolate. Following pressure from the Greens, the self-isolation grant is being expanded, but we have repeatedly asked the Scottish Government and the First Minister about accommodation for people needing to self-isolate. Freedom of information responses show that in the ten months up to mid-January, only seven people from three local authorities were provided hotel accommodation to self-isolate. Can the First Minister confirm whether there has been any progress at all on this? Or if this form of support is still close to to non-existent, because it would be tragic if we allowed new variants to spread simply because people face barriers to doing the right thing.
1: First Minister. That support is there if people need it. Local authorities have the ability and there is work done to identify the needs of people who are being asked to self-isolate and that can, if necessary, include accommodation. I I will certainly uh, take steps to uh, see if there is more we can do to promote the awareness of that so that people know uh, of the availability of it. But we should not, and Patrick Harvey is right here, we should uh, take care to ensure that uh, we are not uh, risking the spread of the virus. Through the lack of availability of the support people need to self isolate. And that's something we take seriously. As we go into this next phase, as hopefully cases fall, we can start to come out of lockdown, vaccination will continue to do its job. Uh, importation and the risk of outbreaks will remain uh, the key threats we face. And these uh, factors, test and protect, uh, self-isolation will come back to the fore as the key weapons we have in our arsenal to keep Covid at base. So Patrick Harvey is right to raise these uh, and the government will continue to do everything we can to make sure all of that is available.
5: Willie Rennie. Uh, I want to warmly welcome Anis Sarwar to his place in the chamber today. And there may have been eight hours of questioning yesterday, but there are still areas of outstanding concern. Forgetting about a meeting, having a different recollection of another meeting, keeping meetings from the Permanent Secretary and not acting swiftly on a claimed leak of a complainer's name. But the First Minister is right that this is a matter for the committee and for the independent investigator to untangle these matters. But there is one lesson that we should all be able to learn today. It should not take the threat to the job of the Deputy First Minister before the government complies with the will of this parliament to release the legal advice it voted for months ago. Those who worked for decades to establish the Scottish Parliament did not do so for this to be flouted by a belligerent and secretive 14-year-old government more interested in defending itself than aiding the process of democracy. Why can't she see that that needs to change?
1: Um, In some ways, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to agree to disagree uh, with Willie Rennie. Um, After the parliamentary votes, the Deputy First Minister had a process of discussion with the committee, which actually led uh, to the committee uh, having access to summaries of the legal advice uh, that the government had had, and earlier this week that advice uh, was published. Um, But there is a really important principle as well underpinning the need for governments to, to be able to take proper legal advice and for the confidentia- confidentiality of that. Uh, governments all over certainly the UK and indeed much of the world uh, rely on that principle as well. So there are many lessons to be learned here. I I, certainly do not dispute that, but we have to make sure that we learn those lessons in the round. And this Parliament uh, also, I think, has a role to play in ensuring uh, that some of these uh, principles that are in place uh, for the the good governance that any administration in the future needs are properly respected and given their place as well.
5: I am disappointed that the First Minister is digging in on this because it's been two weeks, two weeks since the Parliament voted for the OECD education report to be published. The First Minister said we should judge her on her record on education. But that can't be done if such an important report is hidden from the voters at the election. The government already has the report but the Deputy First Minister has still not released it. Do we have to threaten another motion of no confidence in John Swinney to force him to respect the will of this parliament? First Minister.
1: So it seems here that the opposition want to pick and choose the the principles that that they want us to abide by. Um, There is a really important reason why governments have to have the ability to take confidential legal advice. But Willie Rennie is also now asking us uh, to dictate to an independent organisation, the OECD no less, uh, what the timetable of the publication of a report that they have been asked to produce should be. If we were to do that, Willie Rennie, I am pretty certain would be one of the first to be getting to his feet in this chamber saying how outrageous it was that we were intervening in an independent process that we had asked the OECD to undertake. So there are a range of principles here that governments have to abide by, and we will continue to do that in the overall interest of the good governance of the country. And thankfully, perhaps, uh, in a few weeks' time, uh, the people of Scotland are going to get the opportunity to cast their verdict on all of this. And then all of us uh, all of us participating in this session here, with one exception, of course, will put ourselves before the Scottish people. Um, and the Scottish people can have their say and their verdict. And that's the verdict, of course, that we should all respect and abide by.
0: Thank you. Question five,
6: John Mason. Thank you. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to the UK budget.
1: First Minister. Oh, yesterday's uh, delayed budget confirmed additional net funding of £1.175 billion for the Scottish Budget which is welcome. The majority of that has already been factored into our own budget proposals that are currently under consideration by Parliament. Uh, we welcome some of the individual announcements, the extension of the furlough scheme and self-employed support, uh, but the Chancellor's business support measures are significantly less generous than those proposed by the Government and notably there was little further to support health recovery or any significant new help for families in need. Uh, and of course the confirmation that the levelling up fund will indeed undermine the devolution settlement is particularly unwelcome. Nevertheless, we will work uh, with these implications to build, I hope, consensus within this chamber for our budget bill in the coming days.
6: John Mason. Hey, I thank the First Minister for that answer. The TUC has said that the Chancellor is gambling with the recovery. More specifically, our capital budget has been cut and was not restored yesterday. Can she say anything about that? Because it seems to me that capital investment in housing and other things both creates jobs and gives us assets for this country. First Minister.
1: Well, John Mason is absolutely right on this point. I mean, capital spending is, of course, key to economic recovery. And uh, as a result of uh, the budget yesterday, our capital grant for 2021-22 remains lower than it was in 2020-2021. Um, That is disappointing because uh, that is, as I say, one of the key levers we have to support recovery uh, through investment in infrastructure. Uh, As we set out in our own uh, budget, the government here is doing what it can to mitigate that cut. We've maximised our capital borrowing and, of course, we've drawn down £200 million of financial transaction capital from the Scottish Reserve. Uh, That reduces the impact of the... 66% 66 per cent cut in the financial transaction budget we received from the UK Government Spending Review, so we are doing what we can to mitigate that, but the uh, cut in capital funding is deeply regrettable and will have consequences for the pace of economic recovery.
0: Thank you, That's Question number six, Brian Whittle.
7: Uh, thank you. Presenting officer to ask the First Minister what action the Scottish Government is taking to protect and strengthen social connection in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: First Minister. Uh, the pandemic has hit everyone extremely hard, uh, but social connections have possibly suffered. Uh, more than uh, much else. Uh, The focus uh, we have is to achieve balance between suppression and recognising the social harm of loneliness and isolation. We've invested to tackle loneliness and social isolation right from the start of the pandemic through a a range of different support streams. In addition, the Connecting Scotland programme will invest a further £43 million in addressing digital exclusion with a focus on low-income households, older and disabled people. Um, I think in recent uh, days we've all been moved by pictures of residents in care homes, uh, reunited with loved ones, and I hope as we ease out of the current restrictions, all of us are going to enjoy seeing more of those people we love most.
0: Brian Whittle.
7: Can I thank the First Minister for that response? She may be aware of the Talk Together report, which highlights that extended isolation across all of society is having a profound effect on both the physical and mental health of our population. That lack of social interaction points to a significant escalation of a health crisis that was already under strain prior to the pandemic. One of the crucial elements, of course, to this, uh, of the solution is the third sector, both in terms of those organisations offering mental health support as well as those who deliver organised sport, art, music, etc. So can I ask the First Minister how the Scottish Government plans to not only ensure that these essential services are still there and fully functioning after COVID, but also how the Scottish Government is acting actively planning to encourage re-engagement with a society that for the past year has been out of that habit of participating? First Minister.
1: Well, on a financial basis, obviously our budget uh, facilitates support for uh, many of the organisations and activities that Brian Whittle has spoken about. I think he raises a An important point, one that is certainly in our minds, but I think it is one we need to think more about, and and it goes beyond the funding for uh, social connections, and it is about how we help people uh, get back to ways of living uh, that have perhaps become uh, less normal uh, for people. And I think that is something uh, that will perhaps uh, take time, uh, but something that the government will continue to pay a lot of attention to. And on that, uh, I know that there will be many ideas across the chamber that we will also want to reflect on.
0: Thank you question number 7 David Stewart.
8: Uh, thank you Presiding Officer to ask the First Minister what the Scottish government's response is to reports that Scotland faces a penalty of up to 190 million because of irregularities in its EU structural fund spending. First
0: Minister,
1: well, Since 2014, uh, the Scottish Government has allocated over £700 million of European structural funds to support thousands of people and communities, investing in low-carbon projects, helping people with training and skills development and supporting vital local charities. Uh, that funding has been pivotal in supporting smart, sustainable and inclusive growth over a number of years. Uh, The Scottish Government does not face a penalty of up to £190 million in relation to its European structural fund spending. The figure is based on a worst-case scenario of both the European Social Fund and the European Regional Development Fund remaining in suspension. As the Public Finance Minister, Ivan McKee, has already advised Parliament, uh, the European Regional Development Fund suspension was lifted by the Commission in December 2020, and we are continuing to work closely with the Commission to progress the lifting of the European Social Fund suspension.
8: David Stewart. Uh, thank you, President Officer, and I'm grateful for the very detailed response from the First Minister. The First Minister will, of course, be well aware that my region, Highlands and Islands, has been one of the UK's top three beneficiaries of structural funds from the Keswick Bridge to the University of the Highlands and Islands, funding which has sustained and developed the local economy. However, the European Commission has expressed concern for years about two points weaknesses in the verification checks by the Scottish <laughs> Government and the failure to meet annual spending targets. Could the First Minister explain why the situation was not resolved, which is now resulting in millions of pounds being lost to the Highlands Islands and, indeed, the rest of Scotland? First Minister.
1: Well, these are issues that the Scottish Government works closely with the European Commission on. Clearly, uh, these are uh, often highly technical matters, but uh, we were, as I said in my original answer, pleased to be in a position uh, where the... ERDF uh, suspension was lifted in December. I will ask Ivan McKee to write to the member in more detail about the steps we are taking to address uh, some of the uh, criticisms that have been made um, and to give reassurance on these matters.
0: Thank you. We will turn to supplementary questions. Colin Beattie to be followed by Oliver Mundell.
1: Can I ask the First Minister whether
8: there will be a reconsideration of mass vaccination venues as the main premises for vaccinating people with learning disabilities and autism and instead consider assigning these to GPs, given that this would be a more familiar environment for those who may otherwise experience sensory overload? First Minister.
1: Well, we will certainly keep the approach under review uh, and offer those with learning and intellectual disabilities vaccination at their GPs or at another suitable location. We've also put plans in place to ensure learning disability nurses will be available to support vaccination for this group. A walk-through video vaccination centres has been prepared to assist those with learning disabilities and autism who plan to attend a larger vaccination centre. As ever, if anyone is invited to vaccination at a location that might not be suitable for them, for whatever reason, uh, they can make alternative of arrangements by contacting the helpline.
0: Oliver Mundell, to be followed by Elaine Smith. Thank
2: you, off, Can the First Minister offer any reassurance to my constituents who are struggling to get any information regarding their applications to the mobile and home-based Close Contact Services Fund and the newly self-employed hardship fund? Many have had no acknowledgement, others have been rejected without any explanation, and more still are waiting on a follow-up in the next seven to ten days. Given the known issues with these schemes, can she guarantee that the funds will remain open until all applications have been uh, processed correctly? And What advice does she give to those who are worried that while they are waiting for these applications to be processed, they may miss out on the opportunity to apply for local authority discretionary funding? First, Mr.
1: Well, In general terms, I want to give the assurance uh, that nobody will miss out on funding that they are entitled to because of administrative, administrative issues. I uh, will ask the finance secretary to write to the member uh, with uh, some more information on the specific funds that he has raised um, and any issues that are being experienced there. Uh, but We will continue to support business for as long as is required, uh, as we hopefully uh, in the next uh, couple of months come out of lockdown and see businesses start to trade normally again.
0: Thank you. Elaine Smith, to be followed by Bob Dorris.
1: Thank you, President Officer. Can I ask the First Minister now that more children are back at school and the indication is that all should return after Easter, when will all the after school care facilities be permitted to start operating since this is such a vital service for working parents? First Minister. Uh, I think I said on uh, Tuesday, forgive me if I'm uh, getting this wrong, uh, that for school aged children uh, that will also happen when primary school children uh, go back. Uh, we will continue to set out further stages of school return uh, over the next couple of weeks.
0: Bob Doris, to be followed
8: by Maurice Corrie. I want to ask about vaccine hesitancy in society and which groups may be less likely, for whatever reason, to go for the COVID 19 vaccine. It would be helpful to know how much this has been monitored, to what extent that is happening, and uptake encouraged among such groups, for instance, among some of our BAME communities. Can I ask the First Minister if she believes that uptake campaigns led from within communities themselves, which bust vaccine myths, have an important role to play, such as the work of Mr Shaka Sata and the Kurdish Development Association, who are currently running a get a jab, save a life campaign?
1: Well, this is a really important issue and obviously vaccine hesitancy is something that has been in our minds uh, since before the start of the vaccination programme. Uh, The good news is, uh, so far, uh, uptake has been higher than anticipated, but we know there are particular groups uh, in the country uh, where encouraging uptake may be more difficult, uh, and we must address that because we must ensure that all adults uh, are included. Uh, The commitment of faith, third sector and community groups uh, working alongside government and with health boards means that we are already uh, reaching all parts of the population, including minority ethnic communities. We provided funding to a variety of organisations working with uh, minority ethnic communities to reach those uh, most unlikely to take up their vaccine offer. Um, Similar to Test and Protect, the work of organisations supporting minority ethnic groups such as Bemis is essential to ensure vaccine information is accessible and culturally appropriate and delivered by trusted voice such as community leaders and I would certainly join Bob Doris in commending the work of the Kurdish Development Association and the work they are doing to ensure Kurdish communities get reliable information from a source they trust and before I finish let me say hello to Cameron who appeared on the screen briefly behind Bob Doris. <laughs>
0: Maurice before by
3: Boyack. Uh, Thank you, Presiding Officer. A Helensburgh based constituent of mine who is seeking to develop their electrical business has been, made, has, had, has been unable to progress with their planning application with the local council because SEPA, impacted by a, a, a cyber attack in late December last year, has been unable to receive and respond to planning uh, consultations or assist with supplementary information as a result. Now, can the First Minister elaborate on discussions that the Scottish Government's had uh, regarding the disruption experienced by SEPA, given the detrimental effect and delay this continues to cause for numerous projects?
0: First Minister.
1: Well, on the, the general issue, um, it is undoubtedly the case that the cyber attack uh, had a significant impact on SEPA systems uh, and therefore has had a significant impact on its work. SEPA are working hard to rebuild its systems uh, and obviously then to reduce any backlog that has been caused by the attack. I will ask uh, SIPA to write directly to the member with more detail of the work that is underway in the stage they, they are at. Uh, obviously, it is not appropriate for me to comment directly on uh, planning applications or planning issues, uh, but I will ask SIPA to address the particular issue uh, that the member has raised.
0: Thank you. Sarah Boyack to be followed by Fulton McGregor.
1: Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, what discussions is the Scottish Government having with the Edinburgh festivals about what will be possible in public health terms this summer with live and digital performance options? And what support can the Scottish Government offer to keep the festivals and performers going in the light of yesterday's arts and culture consequentials from the additional £408 million allocated in the UK budget? First Minister. Um, Obviously, there are a range of discussions uh, underway and ongoing between the government uh, and different sectors and different organisations about the ongoing impact of restrictions um, and how we can best support them as we hopefully come out of lockdown. Um, I know, uh, well, I'll ask the Culture Secretary to write to Sarah Boyack with specific details of discussions with the Edinburgh festivals. Um, All of us want to see the Edinburgh festivals not just come through COVID uh, but go from strength to strength. Uh, We did uh, give some support uh, last year and we will continue to ensure that we do what we can to support them and indeed uh, arts and culture uh, organisations and festivals across the country. Uh, Going back to an answer earlier on about encouraging people to re-engage as we come out of this lockdown, there's no doubt uh, about the importance of culture and the arts in that process and uh, in terms of supporting the well-being of people as we come out of this really challenging time for the whole country.
6: Fulton MacGregor to be followed by Jamie Halgrud Johnson. Thank you, President Officer. The First Minister will be aware that North Lanarkshire Council have recently taken a decision which effectively defunds three women's aid services across the council area, including Monklands Women's Aid, which covers my own constituency. Due to Scottish Government funding, some services, including the refuge provision, will continue. But there are real concerns that many women and children will be left without a vital service and that also local jobs will be on the line. This decision has been broadly condemned by national organisations, MSPs and MPs locally from across areas and from across political parties. I understand that this is a decision for councillors, but I would be grateful if the First Minister would take the opportunity to outline what support the Scottish Government has made available for domestic abuse services, including women's aid, and would she commit to looking into the current situation affecting women's aid in Lanarkshire and consider if there is any further support available. That might help mitigate against the implications of this decision. First Minister.
1: Well, I am aware of the situation in North Lanarkshire, and while it is a decision for the local authority, I think it is a deeply disappointing decision. Um, Fulton McGregor is right that we do provide funding to Monkland's women's aid of around £174,000 annually and to Motherwell District women's aid of around £111,000 annually. There are also other funds open to application now for the new £13 million delivering equally safe fund to support violence against women and girls services and projects across the country. Um, Women having access to frontline services dealing with violence and domestic abuse is vital. That is why we have committed to review how national and local specialist services uh, for women and children experienced in gender-based violence are commissioned and funded, and how we can ensure quality and sustainability. And that work will commence shortly with an initial twin focus on domestic abuse and sexual violence services.
0: Thank you. Jamie Halkrow-Johnson, to be followed by Alec Rowley.
6: Thank you, Presiding Officer. On the 10th of February, the Cabinet Secretary for Transport told me in committee that the Scottish Government remained committed to the A9 and A96 projects and also to the time frame that had been set out for them. And at FMQs the same day, the First Minister was more cautious, suggesting that progress would be made as quickly as possible. The transport Secretary has now written to me and confirmed that a meaningful update on what he now describes as a very challenging target completion date will not be available until after the summer and after the Scottish elections. So can I ask the First Minister to be honest with my constituents and admit that the Scottish Government does not expect work to, to dual the A9 in its entirety between Inverness and Perth, To be completed by the 2025 target date? First Minister. Uh,
1: We will do everything we can, taking full account of the the COVID implications, which have been inescapable for everybody, uh, to uh, do that work as quickly as possible and, if possible, within or if not possible, within uh, as close to the original target dates as possible. Everybody, I think, understands uh, the delays uh, occasioned by COVID, and uh, we will make sure we work to reduce the impact of those as much as we possibly can.
0: Thank you. Alec Rowley to be followed by Ruth McGuire.
6: Thank you, President Officer.
3: The, um, is a major there is a major backlog within social housing and allocations, transfers and registrations, with much of social housing operating on a restricted service. Can I ask the First Minister what the government is doing to support local authorities and local housing providers? open up these services as quickly as possible and the restrictions, uh, whilst the restrictions have been lifted, uh, given the damage that these restrictions are causing in communities up and down Scotland.
0: First Minister.
1: While restrictions are in place, we've been supporting local authorities uh, financially uh, to uh, a considerable extent, uh, and I know local authorities are, are working closely with a range of local organisations uh, to support them as well. Uh, Some of the services that have been impacted uh, are are vital services for people, and uh, that includes those that Alec Rowley uh, mentions, and and I know, as we all will, uh, the impact of that in my own constituency. So we will provide that support for as long as necessary, but the the thing the government is really focused on right now is how quickly and safely we can start to lift these restrictions so that uh, services and people's lives more generally can get back. To normal. Which is why uh, I know it is frustrating for everybody, uh, but we need to keep encouraging people to abide by all the restrictions right now so that we can continue to suppress cases of COVID and that will accelerate our progress back to normality and have services like the ones Alec Rowley talks
2: about operating normally again.
0: Ruth Maguire to be followed by Dean Lockhart.
2: Thank you, Officer. I understand the Scottish Government has submitted detailed evidence to the UK Independent Human Rights Review and will strongly oppose any attempt to weaken the Human Rights Act. Rather than ripping up the Human Rights Act, a move which has been criticised by amnesty and which academics have warned could undermine Northern Ireland's historic peace agreement, what actions does the First Minister think the UK Government should be taking instead in respect of human
1: rights? The Human Rights Act, in combination with the Scotland Act, is hugely important in protecting fundamental civil and political rights. Uh, The Scottish Government will robustly oppose any attempt to weaken these long-standing safeguards, and I do fear that the review has been established by the UK Government to do exactly that. Our submission to the review also makes clear that there should be no changes to the Human Rights Act without the uh, express consent of the Scottish Parliament. Uh, My strong preference would be for the UK Government to follow Scotland's example, uh, but as a minimum it should give a firm commitment to maintaining the existing protections provided by the Human Rights Act eh, and to ensuring full compliance with the European Convention on Human Rights.
0: Dean Lockhart before by Kenneth Gibson. Thank you presiding officer. First minister four years ago you announced that the Scottish government would set up a publicly owned energy company before the end of this parliamentary term. But four years later and after spending half a million pounds of taxpayers money there is no sight of this energy company. So can the first minister tell us when will we see the publicly owned energy company, or is this something else she has forgotten about? First Minister.
1: Uh, no, I've not forgotten about it, but like uh, much of the rest of the world for the last year, I've been focused on trying to lead the country through a global pandemic. I mean, forgive me. Forgive me that some things have actually been impacted. Uh, Paul Wheelhouse uh, is continuing uh, with working. I'll ask Paul Wheelhouse to write to the member uh, with an update on that. That is one of the many things we want to get back on track as soon as we get out of the COVID pandemic, so that we can continue with the consent of the Scottish people in a few weeks' time. We can continue to deliver for the people of Scotland.
3: Kenneth Gibson, to be followed by Liam Kerr. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, I'm pleased at the resumption of indoor care home visits this month, not least because my mother resides in one. Safety is obviously important, but so is human contact between loved ones. What risk assessment has been made to ensure that safety measures do not overwhelm vulnerable residents to the extent that they are unable to even recognise who their visitors are? First Minister.
1: Well, there is guidance in place and, you know, it's for the reasons uh, that Kenny Gibson sets out, amongst other reasons, that we have taken such care around this. Obviously, care home providers Um, are in the position of ensuring uh, that uh, visiting is as safe as possible um, and all the factors that Kenny Gibson outlines are taken into account but uh, there is no doubt uh, that next to getting young people back to school getting uh, families the ability to visit uh, older relatives in care homes is our top priority. After that, of course, giving all of us the ability to visit uh, and spend time with our loved ones um, is something we all desperately want to see.
0: Thank you, Liam Kerridge, followed by Annabel Ewing.
3: Thank you, Presiding Officer. Yesterday, the Evening Express reported on an elderly Aberdeen man experiencing extreme loneliness following his devoted wife's passing several years ago. Age Scotland estimate that before the pandemic, every street in Scotland housed a chronically lonely older person, and it's only got worse. First Minister, since 2018, we've been pushing for a national loneliness awareness campaign. When can we expect this vital campaign to be brought in? And will the First Minister join me? and encouraging any older person to call the Age Scotland free helpline for advice, information or even just a chat on 0800 1244 two so that we can try to ensure that what we heard about in Aberdeen might never be repeated? First Minister.
1: Uh, yes, I, I very much agree. Uh, and I think it uh, relates back to the answer I gave, I think, uh, if memory this serves me to Brian Whittle earlier on, that we do need to think about how we support people to reconnect as we come out of this uh, hopefully uh, unique situation. Um, and loneliness, which was already an issue uh, before the pandemic, has undoubtedly been exacerbated. And as we do that, I think uh, loneliness or tackling loneliness uh, away campaign will be part uh, of what we do Uh, but we've all got a part to play in that I I think now more than ever before is a time to be thinking of perhaps elderly people or people uh, who are alone uh, in our own networks whether it's neighbours friends family members and how we can reach out and help Uh, but finally I would absolutely endorse uh, the promotion of the Age Scotland helpline, 0800 uh, 1244 um, Round about exactly this time last year, um, I visited Age Scotland uh, to announce the funding to expand uh, that helpline uh, to enable them to deal with more people uh, through the pandemic. They've been doing a great job. Uh, it's a fantastic resource, and people who need it uh, should not hesitate to use it.
0: Thank you. Alex- Annabelle Ewing, to be followed by John Scott. Annabelle Ewing.
2: Thank you, Presiding Officer. Does the First Minister share my concerns that the UK budget has failed both to deliver the level of investment and to provide the long term support that businesses and households in my Cowdenbeath constituency and across Scotland need to ensure a sustainable
1: recovery from the pandemic? First Minister. Uh, Yes, I think the support announced in the budget was welcome, very welcome, but I I do think it had uh, omissions in it. It in certain respects, felt partial and incomplete, and I think support for businesses and households uh, significantly less generous than what we've committed to here in Scotland. I think particularly disappointing was the refusal to make the £20 uplift to universal credit permanent. The Resolution Foundation notes that the poorest households will face a 7% fall in income in the second half of uh, this financial year due to the removal of that payment uplift, um, and that will then take the basic level of benefits back to levels not seen since the early 1990s. At the same time as unemployment is due to peak, uh, we've uh, provided t- turn into businesses. We provided certainty and stability to businesses by extending 100% non-domestic rates relief for retail, hospitality, leisure, and aviation businesses for 12 months. The UK uh, budget fell short of this, so we have uh, taken a number of steps that were not matched yesterday, including, of course, uh, financial support to enable the freezing of council tax. So the support was welcome, but I think there is much more that the UK government needs to do to help businesses and more. Importantly, uh, to help the individuals who are most in need.
0: Thank you, John Scott. By Jenny uh,
6: Thank you, Presiding Officer, First Minister. I too have been contacted by several constituents who have applied over the past few weeks for self-employed hardship and mobile close contact grants, only
0: to have their applications rejected because of glitches in the system. And with the closing
6: date for applications now fast approaching, and having heard nothing back from the Scottish Government. They are left wondering if they will now in fact get the grants to which they are entitled. So, will
0: the First Minister guarantee that no one who has applied before the closing date will be denied a grant they should be eligible for as a result of being wrongly rejected by a glitch or a malfunction in the system? First Minister.
1: Uh, yes, I'm happy to give that assurance uh, that if uh, someone is eligible for funding, they will not lose out on that funding because of any technical or administrative issue. I, forgive me, I can't remember uh, the member who raised this earlier on, uh, but uh, I think I undertook to get the Finance Secretary to write to that uh, member. I think it was Oliver Mundell. My apologies, uh, Mr. Mundell. Um, and I will ask the Finance Secretary to copy John Scott in as well.
0: Jenny Mara to be followed by Julian Martin.
2: Scores of Dundee women are lodging equal pay claims against Dundee City Council after the SNP Council's failure to properly implement the single-status agreement. These women have been at the forefront of the COVID fight, social care workers, cooks and cleaners. We all know that councils are strapped for cash after years of local government cuts by this SNP government. Will the First Minister commit to paying these equal pay claims from her central budget, so the women workers of Dundee get what they have long been owed. First Minister. Well,
1: well, this is a matter, of course, for Dundee City Council, but I am confident that Dundee City Council will do the right thing. And, of course, they have a good example to follow, uh, which is SNP-run Glasgow City Council, uh, which resolved uh, the equal pay scandal, presided over for many years uh, by their Labour predecessors. Absolutely.
0: Gillian Martin.
1: Thank you, President Officer. The UK Tory government has once again failed to deliver on their election promises in the North East by pledging just £27 million to an energy transition fund, despite the SNP government committing to more than double that amount through their £62 million transition fund. I think the Tories are letting down the people of the North East. I think the Tories aren't taking the climate emergency and protecting the future livelihoods of my constituents seriously. Does the First Minister?
0: First
1: Minister. Uh, yes, uh, although I would go further. I think the Tories are letting down the people of Scotland uh, more generally, but thankfully the people of Scotland will get the chance to have their say uh, before too long. But any new investment that can help. Uh, this government realised the ambition to create high-quality jobs and move to a net-zero economy is welcome. But the fact that less than half of the level of the Scottish Government's £62 million investment in the Energy Transition Fund has been committed by the UK Government uh, is a matter that I expect will not escape the attention of Scotland's oil and gas sector and those who work in it.
0: Thank you very much. And I'm going to conclude First Minister's questions there. Oh, point of order, Elaine Smith.
1: Thanks very much, President Officer. Um, the First Minister said earlier that this Parliament would debate the findings of the Committee on Handling of Harassment Complaints and James Hamilton's report. However, <coughs> excuse me, this Parliament closes in three weeks' time. So I'd like to ask you, Presiding Officer, can, <coughs> excuse me, can the Bureau ensure that time is allocated in this Chamber before then to have that debate if the reports are produced?
0: Thank you, uh, Ms Smith. I'll make sure that uh, the, well, the business managers will have heard your comment and I'm sure they'll be able to raise it at the next meeting of the Bureau uh, and be able to discuss finding time for that to happen. Thank you very much. Uh, that concludes the questions. We'll resume at 2.30 with portfolio questions. Parliament is suspended.